Uh, playing make-believe can be fun, can't it? I think it can be. Uh, you can join in a game with kids and their imagination just runs wild. Uh, that can be a lot of fun. There's uh, reading a book and imagining yourself as the main character. Uh, I like to do that with Superman comics. Uh, make-believe can be fun, can't it? Uh, but not always. Like some of the make-believe games we play at Christmas time. So you might know this one. Uh, the one where we get all the rellos together and pretend that there's no underlying tensions. And we play make-believe that everyone gets along and everything's fine. Uh, some families are better at this game than others. Uh, then there's the one where we play make-believe about uh, all the Christmas cheer. Because apparently uh, Christmas is meant to be a time of happiness where everyone's doing just dandy, but for some of us, Christmas can be a really hard time. So there might be previous dreams unfulfilled, loved ones that aren't around anymore. Uh, inside, you're actually a bit of a wreck, but we put on this happy face and pretend that Christmas somehow makes all the pain go away. But then there's the less serious games of make-believe that we play at this time of year, uh, like when we talk about a guy from the North Pole who breaks all known physical laws about time and space to visit every house and uh, give presents. Uh, and then there's the question of, of course, where do the cookies and the drink go? How large can one stomach be? Uh, Santa is make-believe central, isn't he? Now, it can be harmless fun, but there's a lot of make-believe that comes with the modern Christmas, isn't there? Pretending that everything's all right, pretending that Santa's coming, pretending that we all like our presents, pretending that Uncle Al is funny. Uh, and whereas our Christmases can be filled with make-believe... For Luke, when he wrote his gospel, even before he starts telling us about the first Christmas, he wants to assure us that none of it is make-believe. There's no pretending, no nudge-nudging, wink-winking going on here. Christmas and Jesus, according to Luke, it's all about certainty, not make-believe. And the certainty that we have about Christ means that we're free to give our all for him. Knowing that he's real gives us the freedom to abandon ourselves to his service. Have a look at verse 3 of chapter 1, where Luke tells us that he wrote his book to give certainty. Verse 3, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. See, according to Theo uh, Luke, Theophilus could be certain of what he's learned about Jesus. And the basis of this certainty is found in the first three verses. Uh, Luke gives three reasons why we can be certain of the truth of Christ. And these three reasons are all grounded in the historical reality of Jesus. It's that he actually happened. He's historically true. Uh, we see this in Luke's first reason for our certainty, and it's that when he wrote his gospel, there were already many other accounts of Jesus. Luke wasn't the first person to write about him. Have a look at verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. You see, when Luke wrote his gospel, there were already a number of other writings about Jesus doing the rounds. The point being that this news about Christ was wide open, out in the public. Jesus isn't a made-up figure that some people thought up. He's not a fictional character whipped up by some crazies. There's lots of people writing about him all over the place. Just like Jesus when he was around, 
Uh, he was very public, out in the open, not hidden in some dark corner. Well, the writings about Jesus were the same, out in the open, not hidden in some dark corner. As Luke says, many had undertaken to write up an account of him. And so there's lots of people writing, lots of people reading and listening, all out in the open. It's all subject to public scrutiny, including the scrutiny of people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. At the time of Luke, there were still plenty of people left who were there when Jesus was around. And so dodgy accounts of Christ, they would have been noticed a mile off. Now, the followers of Jesus, they wanted the truth of Christ handed down. And so it's not surprising that it's the eyewitnesses who are the ones handing down the accounts. And this is the second reason why we have certainty about the things taught of Jesus. It's been handed down by eyewitnesses. Have a look at verse 1 again. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. My dad grew up on a little north coast town of New South Wales called Mullumbimby. And when dad was a little tacker in the 1950s, there were rumours going around that there was a Tasmanian tiger in the district. Now, just in case you're not aware, the Tasmanian tiger was extinct in Tasmania in the 1930s, and it's thought to have been virtually extinct from mainland Australia by about 1800. So for someone to say that there's a Tasmanian tiger roaming around Mullumbimby in the 1950s, it's just a bit hard to swallow. Uh, to believe it, you'd want more than one eyewitness story. In fact, you'd want a lot of eyewitnesses. And you'd want more than one sighting by all these witnesses. And if you had both those things, you've got a pretty good case then. Well, that's exactly what we've got when it comes to Jesus. Not just one eyewitness. Literally thousands of people heard him and saw him. And they didn't just see him once. He was something of a public figure for around three years. And at the time of Luke writing his gospel, there's still plenty of these eyewitnesses around to talk to and verify things. In fact, it's the eyewitnesses that were handing down the accounts of Jesus. What we have in the New Testament of Christ, it comes from those who were there from the first. Now, as an aside, the historical reliability of what we have about Jesus in the New Testament, it really is second to none. To see how reliable the New Testament is when it comes to Jesus, I've got a screen to come up on the, sorry, I've got a screen to come up on the table. I've got a table that's going to come up on the screen for you. Uh, what we're going to do is just compare the historicity of the writings that we have of these three figures, Plato, Caesar, and Jesus. Now, historians don't doubt the historicity, uh, the, sorry, the authenticity of the works of Plato or Caesar, uh, but this is how little we have on them. For Plato, we only have seven copies of his works, and the earliest copy we have is about 1,200 years after Plato first wrote it. For Caesar, we only have uh, ten copies of his writings, and the earliest copy we have is about 1,000 years after Caesar first wrote it. Compared with the New Testament, where we have about 24,000 copies of it, and the earliest copy we have is only about 40 to 90 years after it was first written. Historians don't doubt the works of Plato. They don't doubt the works of Caesar. And they most certainly don't doubt the works of the New Testament. But if you listen to the media or to Joe Blow down the street, you'll hear people say, you can't trust the New Testament. It's just a bunch of Chinese whispers. There is no historical reason to do this at all. 
But Jesus does make some remarkable claims, doesn't he? And he does some incredible things and people don't like what he's got to say. So they've got to come up with some reason, some theory as to why we can dismiss the New Testament. But the historicity of the New Testament, it's something we can have certainty about. And the third reason we can be certain of the truth of what Luke wrote about Jesus is because of his careful investigation. Have a look at verse 3. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... Uh, Luke's claiming to have carefully checked things out when it comes to Jesus. Uh, we've already seen some evidence, haven't we? You know, speaking to eyewitnesses, reading other accounts of Jesus when he wrote his. But we'd also expect to see some evidence of his careful investigation, given that he's claiming it for himself. So come with me just across to chapter 3 and verse 1. Uh, here in chapter 3, Luke's writing about the time when the word of God came to John. But Luke has carefully investigated precisely when John received God's word. And so he rattles off who was the Caesar at the time and who was the governor and who the Tetrarchs were and who the high priest was. Chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. It's precise detail, isn't it? It's careful investigation. And we see this sort of thing right through Luke's Gospel and into his second work, the book of Acts. Lots of attention to detail, lots of historical grounding. And please notice that as he does this, he is putting his Gospel on the historical chopping block. Because if we go back in history and discover that these people didn't exist or that during the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate wasn't the governor of Judea, well, Luke's gospel loses credibility, doesn't it? And the entire New Testament is like this. It places itself on the historical chopping block. The New Testament sticks its neck out and says that if you can demonstrate that it's historically false, then it should be chucked out. The New Testament invites such critique of itself and for almost 2,000 years the New Testament has stood up to rigorous historical examination. To know the certainty of Christianity the New Testament authors consistently point to the simple fact that Christ is historically true. There actually was a Jesus of Nazareth. Thousands of people saw him, heard him, touched him. He said and did remarkable things uh, he died under Pontius Pilate on a Friday. On the Sunday after, he rose from the dead, came back alive, and it's all historically verifiable. It all actually happened. We can be certain of the things taught to us in the pages of the Bible, which is fantastic news, because this means we are free to give ourselves to the truth of Jesus because certainty brings freedom. A couple of years ago, my friend Rob was uh, holidaying in New Zealand and he went bungee jumping. At the same time, there was a, a lady who had signed up for the same bungee jump, but she was very uncertain about the whole thing, and I don't blame her. I'm not sure I would do this. And so when it came time for her to jump and she was strapped in and everything was set, uh, the instructor said jump, but she teetered on the edge. 
she wavered. She was hesitant, to say the least, uncommitted, reluctant. After a long time, eventually, she walked away. She couldn't do it. Uh, Without certainty, she couldn't give herself to the jump. My mate, though, on the other hand, he was certain. Uh, Rob knew that the jump was safe, and so as he was being strapped in, as he was being set up for the jump, he made a pact with himself that when the instructor said jump, he would simply count to three and jump no matter what because he knew the jump was safe. Now, uh, he tells me he was very nervous, uh, as you would be standing on top of a platform and looking down where normally you would be met with certain death. He was breathing very hard. He could feel his heart pumping. Adrenaline was coursing through his veins, but he was certain. And so when the instructor said jump, he just counted to three. One, two, three. Being certain of the jump gave him the freedom to give himself fully to the jump. And being certain of Christ gives us the freedom to give ourselves fully to him. We don't have to be caught wavering or wondering or hesitant or unreluctant. Certain of the truth of Christ, we can follow him with everything we've got. And look, perhaps even right now, as you're sitting here this evening, you're filled with that sort of fire in your belly for Jesus. You know, there's nothing you wouldn't do for him. The truth of Jesus, it's like a tornado in your soul. And there's nothing you can do to stop it from just blurting out of you. And friends, if that's you, that's just terrific. And tonight, be encouraged to keep stoking the fire of your love for Christ because he's real. He's true. We do well to live completely for him. But we're not all always like that, are we? And so now I just want to briefly speak to three different types of people who for three different reasons might not be living out the freedom that comes with the certainty of Christ. And the first person is the one who, deep down, you're not certain about Christ. You're not sure if all these things about Jesus are true. You've got doubts about Jesus and Christianity. Big doubts. You might keep coming to church... Uh, Everyone might think that you're right on board with all this Jesus stuff, but actually you're just not sure. And if that's you, can I encourage you to look for answers? Because the Bible's okay about you having doubts about it. God's big enough to cope with our frailties and our questions. It's okay, but do look for answers. Don't sit in the halfway house where you're weighed down with your doubts, but you do nothing about it. Take the time to look into the reliability of the truth of the Bible. In Christianity, the biggest area of certainty is found in the historical reality of Jesus of Nazareth. He actually happened. To be sure of the truth of Christ, you can look into it. So look into it. The second person I want to talk to is the person who knows that Jesus is real that you believe in the truth of the Bible, you don't doubt Christianity, it's just that, in all honesty, you don't do much about it. It's not lack of certainty that means you don't give yourself fully to Jesus, it's lack of conviction. And so you find yourself just being a bit selfish or lazy 
or half-hearted. You know Jesus is true, but he doesn't make much difference to you. Friends, if this is you, Luke 1 is reminding us that the truths of the Bible are certain. That as we read of him being the one true God of heaven and earth, he really is. As we learn from the Bible that the death of Christ, it is the only way that anyone can be saved from the wrath of God, then it's true that people will go to hell without him. The truth of Christ, it's not like reading a comic book. It's not make-believe. The Bible tells us of the one true God who came and rose from the dead for us so that we might wonderfully belong to him and be his people. So brothers and sisters, let's put our half-hearted days behind us. Let's stop messing with the, the fantasy that we still have our own lives, but I've got Jesus as well. Now let's be rid of our cosy Christian lives. Let's give ourselves fully to him who gave himself fully for us. And lastly, the third type of person I want to speak to is you. If you've put your trust in Christ, you've asked him for the forgiveness of your sins, And yet you're still weighed down. And so you don't give yourself fully to Christ because you can't. It feels like there's a a giant ball and chain tied to your soul. The filthiness of your sin, it clings to you and it drags you down. And then you hear me talking about the truth of Christ and giving ourselves fully to him and you just find yourself on yet another guilt trip. Because thanks, preacher, here's something else I don't do right. Now I feel even worse. What did I come to church for? And it just seems that every day your sin keeps piling higher and higher and you are getting crushed under its weight. Dear brother or sister, if this is you, then the first thing you need to do is to abandon yourself to the truth of the love of Christ. Stop holding on to your past. Stop holding on to your present. Go back to the cross and see the love of God, the mercy of God, nailed to a tree for you. For you. Dive deep into his waters of grace. And know the forgiveness of your sins. That when Christ died, he offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins once for all. Don't insult him by living as if he only did a half job. Humbly rejoice in his complete washing away of all your guilt and shame. That God has hurled your sins as far as the east is from the west. And so believe God when he says, Child, your sins are forgiven. Friends, it can be any number of reasons why we don't give ourselves fully and freely to the truth of Christ. Luke starts his gospel by assuring us of Christ's certainty. So this Christmas, don't get caught up in all the games of make-believe we play. Instead, let's abandon ourselves to Christ Jesus, to his truth, to his rule, to his love.
because we have certainty about him. And so we are free to give ourselves fully to the one who gave himself fully for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, that he would give himself fully, even to death, for us. Thank you for the certainty we have of him. But Father, we do want to pray, especially for any of our brothers and sisters here tonight, who are struggling with weariness, doubt, insecurity before you. Father, please remind and refresh and comfort us with the truth and the certainty of the forgiveness of sins in the name of your Son. And so, Father, we pray that you would encourage us and by your Spirit you would revive us. That, Father, for your praise, we would give ourselves fully to the one who gave himself fully for us. And we ask it in his name. Amen.